Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 172 of the Game Pit Podcast, a podcast about modern tabletop gaming. My name's Ronan. You're very welcome, and thank you for joining me, and just me this time. And coming up, I have got seven quick reviews, six games, and one expansion, all games that come in at a listed playtime of under an hour, although one of them I'll say took us a lot longer than an hour, and I'll talk about that when we get there. And this podcast is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. I better tell you that. Head to dicetower.com for loads of gaming goodness. Before I even kick off with the reviews, a thank you to John in Ashby on Twitter, who sent us a private message. So last episode, Sean and I reviewed Icky, and I had big issues with the turn order in that the players who moved furthest got to go first, meaning you can just get blocked out of spaces and it become very frustrating. John pointed out that the rules in the rule book, believe it or not, are incorrect. And actually, if you're doing fewer moves, unless you go to that wild space, you actually go first. And apparently there are threads on Board Game Geek about this, and it's been confirmed as an error in the rule book. Firstly, obviously, a major rule, having that wrong in your rule book is a big problem. And I, I said at the time we were playing, I think we said it in the review, that it just felt wrong. And Sean said it felt wrong. And I said it felt wrong. And we both checked the rule book and went, no, no, it clearly states it here. It must be right. That's not good. So the publisher, I think, you know, big, huge own goal there because you've kind of hamstrung your own game. The second thing it led me on to think about is that do Sean and I go on BGG and do lots of internet research before we play and review games? Usually we don't. Now, there's a reason for that, because we're reviewing the game out of the box. And if the game comes in that state, that is how people are going to play it. And the number of people, even who play hobby games, who are on BGG is small. It genuinely is. I know lots and lots and lots of people who play dozens of hobby games, our games, every month, and they never go on BGG. They don't even have an account. Even out of people who have BGG accounts, the ones who would actually bother to go and check rules threads before playing is, is tiny. So as a review, I don't think it's a good thing to turn around and go, well, the game you've got is like this, but you have to go over there and do some research before you can actually play it. And that's not good enough. So so it's kind of a deliberate choice by us most of the time to just say, we're playing this out of the box. Now, if we knew that rule was wrong, if we'd come across it and seen it in discussion, we wouldn't deliberately play with the rule wrong. Well, we might. Sometimes we would. We play one game with it wrong and then we go to the corrected rule and play it so we could talk about the difference. But we would never deliberately sort of give a game a worse review than it could get. In this case, we generally had no idea and hadn't looked it up and had really no intention of looking it up because I didn't like the game enough. And would it have changed my review? It would have changed it a little bit, but I still think there was too few things to do in the game. So I didn't love it for reasons other than the turn order, although that was one that certainly I highlighted. And it probably would have gone up, I'm guessing, a bit in its rating, but it wouldn't have been a keeper and it wouldn't have been sticking around in top 10s or anything near that. So thank you very much, John, for pointing it out to us because we just wouldn't have known. And it made sense and we both sort of did a slap forehead, oh, of course. And there you go, just maybe publishers print your rule books correctly. We'll crack on with the reviews for this episode. And I'm going to start with Watch, designed by Daniel Newman, published by P.D. Verlag, one to four players, published as 60 minutes. And it's a Euro game you can get in in under 60 minutes, which is a bonus already for wanting to play something with 
proper rules. You actually feel like you played a proper game in a short time frame. And there's a lot of games, as I said, along that sort of line in this episode. That's where we're heading. The theme of watch is that you are in a Soviet-era watch factory and you discover that during World War II, it used to be a munitions factory. I think this must be shortly after World War II because also within there, there's like paperwork that incriminates people and things like this. And it's a worker placement game. There are eight spaces in a dial around the board, like the face of a watch, if you like, and that's not explicitly put out there. And each turn, a bullet is going to tick around a quarter phase of this, of this circle of the board. And whoever's closest to that bullet is then going to pick up and choose a free space. And depending on how many players you have, that's going to depend on how many free spaces there are, but they're always, it's always limited. And even when you play with two players, you're playing with a dummy player, a dice just sort of a very simply AIs, another player so the spaces are limited but i will say straight away it is much better with four players because you're really really restricted in where you can go and not only is it from that bullet as it ticks around and it's going to go three times around you have 12 rounds in the game but it's also the order of the actions is taken in that order which sometimes can be important and certainly is much more important towards the end when you can do one sort of bonus action everyone gets to do a smuggle at the end so what all these eight actions do are they give you access in various ways to the four resources within the game. The resources are cards, gears, crates, and coins. Now, cards are the easiest. Cards are basically you're looking at intel that incriminates people, as we said. And there are four colors of cards, and they have three actions on them. And you can either collect one of each color. It's going to give you 25 points. Or you can collect runs of the same color card. But the actions you have during the game, which will just help you out in various ways, help you smuggle more or protect you from being bribed, as we'll get to, you can play them, but you still keep them for your set collection at the end of the game. So it's just a set collection building up these cards, and they'll score you points straight out, and they're definitely the easiest point scoring. The next resource is gears that you can get and you can create. Now, gears within themselves don't score anything. But by taking an action, you can hand them in for coins, which is another resource, or you can hand them in for crates of munitions. And crates come in values one to nine. And the number of gears you hand in, the different color of crates as they become more valuable, depends upon how you've upgraded your own track. Now, what does that mean? In front of you, you've got a board with four tracks on it, which relate to the four separate sections of the player action board. And every turn for free and possibly extra ones if you choose that action, you take one disc up and you pull it onto a majority scoring track. Now, the effect of taking the disc off is it makes your actions more efficient. Half of them are affected by this board. So if I upgrade my gear production every time I go and produce gears, I'm going to make more gears. That's easy and simple enough. However, also, where I choose to put them on these tracks, there are six tracks. Two related to gears, two related to coins, and two related to those crates. The crates score points by themselves, but whoever has the majority of these upgrade discs put in the track for crates will also score extra points per crate they have at the end of the game. Coins aren't worth anything by themselves, but if you've won either or both of the majority tracks for the coins, you make them worth points. And gears, in fact, are worth nothing by themselves, but you can trade them in for crates, but you can make them worth points to you by winning these majority tracks. So you're choosing which actions to boost up and you're also creating your own scoring. And that was a really interesting part of Watch to me because in a lot of these games where you can upgrade things and you can take different actions, the alternative or turning something into points is, is a throwaway. 
It's like, oh, yeah, and every flower I have is worth one point. In Watch, I can definitely make it so that it's not worth me doing that smuggling. It's not worth turning my gears into crates because I'll score more points by keeping them, by winning the majority tracks. And if I make my coins worth a load of points, now how do you get coins? Well, basically you get them by maybe selling gears, but also there's a bribing mechanism in the game, which, which I kind of touched on. But if I have coin, those coins at the end of the game, I can make it so they're worth lots of points to me, up to 60, which can make a huge difference. So I can very much drive my own scoring much more so than a sort of a point salad game. This isn't point salad. You're not going to win many tracks again, especially with four players, which is where the game is at its best. So I've mentioned bribing. What happens there is there's an action. and What you do is you take up four cards and they each correspond to one quarter of the board and you secretly choose them. In each quarter of the board, there's one sort of risky action and there's one safe action. And you choose that after everyone's chosen their work placement for the next turn, you flip those cards over. And anyone who's in a risky action off a sector that you've chosen to sort of go and look at, to watch, yeah, the name keeps coming in again and again, <laughs> that person has to pay you a bribe, depending on how much they've boosted up their actions. When I said, remember, you take the disc off, you put them on the scoring tracks. Right. So the more they've boosted up any particular action, the more money they have to give you. And it makes people think. And it makes people be aware of money. And if they're short of money, suddenly there's actions that are frozen to them. But I said there's three actions on those cards that you collect for set collection. Well, one of those cards makes the bank pay for you. Equally, if you've no one takes the watch action on a turn, then the game is just going to randomly choose three or two cards, whatever. It gets set up randomly at the beginning of each turn. There's a set of 12 cards that sort of drive how valuable certain things are. But if you're the last person to choose it, you're immune. And that you never have to pay a bribe. And that can be worth having if you think no one's going to choose a watch for a while. So that's another little interesting thing in this quick game to be aware of. And that thought of the ticking hand of the, the bullet going around like a clock and the timing of the watch action and the timing of the whole game is very, very important. Because you'll want to get to certain actions around the board. But you may have to position yourself this turn for when that clock ticks round to be the first person to choose next turn. However, if someone's in the spot you want, you need to be going directly after them because they'll have to move out of it and then you'll be able to move back in. If you go before them, they won't have moved out of it yet. So you won't be able to get in there and you're constantly thinking about where's that person likely to go? What do I need to do? Am I willing to compromise this turn to be in the right position for next turn to get the thing that I really want? And it's all over within an hour. And there's these few things to think about and drive your own scoring and be aware of what the other players are doing and set your own... I, I, I like it. I like it a lot. The aesthetics are quite plain. I think it's deliberately sort of, sort of supposed to be Soviet and, and beigey and, and not very understated. The speed of play is a huge bonus. There's very little downtime. You'll constantly go, 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 go. Just collect your things. Every action is super simple. It's just, oh, I get seven gears. I pay this. I get that. And... There's nothing confusing. Everything is out there. All the iconography is there for you. It's an odd duck of a game. Sean's played it once, and he has told me probably three times he still can't make his mind up about what, about whether it's a good game or bad game, indifferent. He's not sure. I've played it five times now. I've played it at two-player, three-player, and four-player. It's fine at two-player. Decent three-player. It's very good four-player, and I would recommend trying it out at that. And I think it's inexpensive. I, I, I bought it because oh, I can't remember how much I paid. I think it's inexpensive. And it's definitely, if you like the idea of a 60-minute little strategic game with some interaction, 
watch is one to look out for. And I give it a very respectable score of 75. Okay, the next game is a, the second callback to last episode. We talked about Icky. Now we're going to talk about Dinosaur Island, Raw and Right. If you listened to last one, Sean reviewed Dinosaur World. We were chatting about it. And we had heard that Raw and Right might actually collect all the essence of Dinosaur World and Dinosaur Island and do it in a shorter time frame. Well, the time frame is supposed to be 30 to 45 minutes. This is the game that I definitely did not get done in an hour, by the way. So I played it four player, I played it two player. Neither of them came in under an hour, and the four player game was much longer than an hour. So 30 to 45 minutes, I don't know. Maybe we're just terribly slow at rolling rights, but that was nowhere near happening. Designed by Brian Lewis, by uh, David McGregor, and Marissa Misura, and from Pandasaurus Games, it's four one to four players. So it is a rolling right. And there are nine sort of rounds. There's two action rounds, and then what's called a run through your park, and then two and one, or two and one. So in, a, in an action round, you roll the dice, and it's equal to the number of players times two plus one. And then you do a snake draft off the dice that have been rolled. And when you're choosing them, you're going to get resources off there. You're either going to get certain types of DNA. We'll see what that's for. For coins, we'll see what those are for. For security, we'll see what that's for. And that's about it. Oh, sometimes you can build stands to go into your park as well. The last die that's left, everyone's going to get the income of that, but also there may be threat dots on that die, and everyone is going to have to mark down threat. Now, there's a joint threat and security track, and if you, once you get to the end of a run, and the three runs, if your threat is higher than security, you're going to start suffering deaths, and that's really bad. It'll bring disasters on your park, and will slow you down and cost you a lot of points. Once you've done that draft, there's also a very small worker placement thing whereby each player takes a dice and puts it in play and it chooses one of the actions. You can go on top of each other, but it's going to cost you threat if there's any threat on the die that you're going on top of. What can you do when you do your worker placement? Well, you can make dinosaurs and that's where this DNA comes into it. There are herbivores, small carnivores and big carnivores you can make. The difference between them is Clusting DNA, there's basic types, there's more, there's more complicated types that are just scarcer to get, basically. And the more threatening and exciting and point-scoring the dinosaur, the more or tougher DNA it's going to cost you. Now, threatening means it's going to add on that threat security track we talked about. You need to keep your security up with your threat at all times. The excitement is going to add to a different track, which is going to give you income when you run your park. And the points are literally points. Now, there's three different types of each of the herbivores, big carnivores, and small carnivores. But there's no difference because they all the three types go in the same size pen that gets drawn on a grid, and that is your park. And there is a spatial thing to how you draw these on there. Because when you run your park, one of the other actions you do is get roads. And if you've got roads that connect your HQ through buildings, you're going to get excitement points for going through those buildings each time you run. And also, if you connect to an exit, you're going to get points at the end for having gone out and exit. You need to go out a different exit each time, and each building can only give you excitement once. So you're looking to run via different routes through your park every time that you do a run after two action rounds to get your excitement, to get your income, to bring back, to go again and again. So you're building dinosaurs in order to get all those good things. You can also build stands. Now, I said that sometimes you get it on a dice face. You can also do it on here. And there are three different types of stands. And again, they give you an income when you run the park. It might be in coins, it might be in a random dice, and it might be in excitement. And those are basic things that don't change. 
You can also get security because you need to keep security above your threat or you're going to get deaths. Now, the thing about this whole threat and security thing is, I said you're going to gain excitement. And when you run your part, one of the things you do is you check your excitement track. You see how much excitement you've got and it gives you an income. It gives you income in money, a little bit of DNA and insecurity. So you're going to get security every round no matter what, which means, yes, you need to be a little bit aware of threat, but going a completely low threat strategy in order to not have to worry about security is not valid because going low threat will score you fewer points because you get less excitement and you get fewer points for doing it. And you'd have a load of security that you've earned by all the other mechanisms in the game that you're not using. And that means that it tends to be that everyone is doing quite similar things and that the next time you play Raw and Right, you're not going to choose something wildly different. You're still going to be getting DNA, building dinosaurs, putting paddocks out, putting stands out, rides, whatever it might be, joining them together with roads and doing the same thing again. This income and security really limits the strategic options that you may or may not have. So when you've done these drafts and you've done these actions and you've built dinosaurs and you've built stands and you've written them all in your park and you've put roads in between them and you've checked the security is not below your threat, you're going to run your park. Get your income from stands. Now, I've been talking about coins. You can get coins via various things. You can build specialists. Specialists, I said that well. You can build specialists with coins. It's one of sort of the two main things you can do with them. Specialists now will give you an instant when you when you pay for them with your coins that you've got from various routes. Also, though, they'll give you an income each round. Now, the second thing you can do with coins, mostly, is you can build buildings. There will be three unique specialists out for each game, and there will be three unique buildings out for each game. And they mix it up a little bit, but not a lot, and not really enough, if I'm honest. And the thing is that you're always going to go specialist early game because they give you an instant bonus and they give you an income. And at some point, you're going to flip to buildings because when you build them, they give you something per stuff you've done and they give you endgame scoring. So there's no point building them early. There's no point building specialists late. Another thing whereby you look at it and you go, well, specialist buildings, which should I do? Oh, I'm going to do specialists early. I'm going to do buildings late. Everyone's going to do that. The options of, that look like, oh, maybe I can do go different ways are just not valid because they're just simply not as good as going down the route the game is telling you to go down. The other thing I found about the game, oh, yeah, when you run it through, by the way, we talk about that. You do your tour, you road through your buildings, you get a little bit of excitement for doing that at some points at the end, and then you check your deaths. And if you've got too many deaths, you'll start getting disasters in your park. And that will, like, you have to choose which things to destroy, lose DNA or lose a stand, or, yeah, sometimes uh, dinosaurs might run wild and you have to cross out the paddocks. If you're letting that happen, there's no way you're going to win the game because the game's so tight if you just play sort of everyone the same, which is what everyone does. If you start letting your deaths get out of control, you're just completely out of it. So just don't do it. Just, just, it's not going to happen because you, that would just be playing so badly. As well as sort of like this, there's no strategic variety here. The drawing bit, the actual right bit of the roll and right, is a bit of a sham. It's a bit dull. There's, there's no sort of struggle to fit buildings in. I did one where I built every single paddock and some stands and they all fit in the grid and it wasn't hard to fit them in. And then this idea of running, you get so such little stuff within the game of running these tours of having it's a pain to join them all the roads, okay? It's just a thing you have to do. And you're kind of going, Oh, I better take three roads now. I better take specialist roads, because you know, otherwise. Bleh. 
So you do it, and then you're like, oh, wow, I earned four excitement or five excitement this turn or seven excitement. It's not huge. You know what I mean? It's just something that you is a chore and you're forced to do. And to be honest, that theme comes through the whole lot of, well, yeah, I guess I've got this DNA. I haven't particularly thought about what DNA I'm taking. It turns out I can make, what, two uh, two megasauruses and one triceratops. Well, I'll, I'll make them then. And you can always make something with the DNA. It doesn't really matter what you take. You'd always be able to. You might turn and go, oh, towards the end, if I take one turquoise, then I won't waste that other one over there. But it's not exciting. It's, it's just a chore. She says, I'll take it and I'll build it. And at no point was I really getting interested in what I was doing. It felt too long. Maybe we were ages. I cannot see that you are playing this game in 30 to 45 minutes. I cannot see that. Maybe I'm, people tell me I'm an idiot. Maybe so. But neither could anyone else I've played with it. And in the end, if Roar and Riot is the best version of this gaming system, in fact, no, I know it's not. Because the other one I've played is Jewelosaur Island. And there was very similar vibes to it, but I thought that was much smoother. I had more fun with that. I didn't think it was a great game. I thought it was a good game. This, I think, is actually a poor game and a chore. And I've given Roar and Riot a 39, and I'm going to call it Dinosaur Island, Chore and Right. Next one up. This is a special game for our household. It crosses a lot of our, our ticking boxes of things we're into. Kim Joy's Magic Bakery for two to five players, 20 minutes, designed by Ben Kepner from Skybound Games. Kim Joy was a contestant a few years ago on Great British Bake Off, which has a major amount of love in this household. And she's also a big gamer. So seems almost inevitable that a game would have come out with Kim Joy's name on it. And no surprise, it's got a bakery theme. The game itself is a family cooperative set collection game. I had low expectations, if I'm honest, due to the whole thing. I'm thinking, well, they, Great British Bank is pretty big. Maybe they'll go for a mass market feel on this one. What you get is everyone gets a hand of a certain amount of cards. Then there's a market of, of ingredients, basic ingredients you can take from. The next level up, there's a set of advanced ingredients, which you cannot take from, but as an action on your turn, and everyone gets three actions on their turns. You can trade in cards to take the more advanced ingredients. And lastly, there's going to be customers. And customers come in and say, I want this particular, whatever it might be, a cake or a pudding or some sort of thing that someone would make. And it requires a combination of advanced and simple ingredients. And at the end of the day, one player has to have all those ingredients in their hand and hand it in before this customer drops off the end of the track after three rounds. So there's a very timing issue here of, all right, we need to talk to each other, get the right things, do the right combos, hand them over to the right person, and that one person is going to serve this customer. It's a game of timing. It's a game of efficiency. And the co-op within it is very, very, very strong. You can get nowhere by yourself. If you try to serve a customer by yourself, you will not have enough time. I absolutely promise you. Unless you're playing with a white wave reduced numbers, and even then I doubt it. The more players you have, the more the co-op comes in, and the more you have to be aware of each other's actions, and you have to be talking, and you have to plan ahead. It's quite gamely, really. And for the target audience, this has not been dumbed down. It's a simple system. It looks lovely. It's got a lovely theme. It's in fact got a thing to it where there's a story and you go via chapters and in each chapter, the challenge is slightly different. It's so like the fox might have stolen all the eggs. So you take all the eggs out of the recipe pile and then you, there's something you have to do to get eggs back in, which you're going to need at some point to fulfill the customers. And it, it just switches it up a bit. There's a lot of gamely stuff here and it, it's not super easy in any way whatsoever. 
But it's got very clear rules. It's got very clear symbology. I think that people who are not used to cooperative gaming are going to have to just take the losing a bit and take the, oh, we just got a bronze star on this. You can get bronze, silver, or gold star scores. If you're a bunch of gamers, you're going for gold. And you can be disappointed if you don't get it. That's what we're doing. And we're having fun. It's challenging. We have to think it out. And mistakes are made. And we miss customers. If you're newer to gaming, you're coming in because of Great British Bake Off, this is going to be a challenge. But I hope a fun one. Because it really is. Everyone is chatting to each other and a new customer comes out and it's suddenly it's like, right, well, you and I will make the creme pat and then you'll be able to serve that up to them. So maybe you you guys over there, and they were like, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll take on this one. So what have you got? I've got this. What's in the market? If I take this and do that and give it to you, and then Ryan, next time around, if you can grab one of those and hand it to Sean, then, then maybe he can, oh, okay, cool. So I'll do this this round and next round. There's multi-round planning in this little game about cute animals getting bakery. And... I was really pleasantly surprised. Kim Joy's Magic Bakery. Will it hit the target audience? I hope so. I hope people stick with it because they'll really sort of find a game to get into in a very quick 20-minute lovely package. And we enjoyed it. And for what it is, I'm going to give it a really decent score. It's a 78. And I'm pretty sure... No, it's the second highest score of this uh, episode from me. So, yeah. Oh, big hit. I'm very happy. I got it for Ellie for Christmas and uh, and a good present it was too. Next game up is Photograph, Wind the Film, which originally came out as just Wind the Film. Designed by Sashi, it's published, well, you'll be able to get it, is Matigo, although it was originally published in Asia by other publishers, various ones. And it's for two to four players. It takes around 20 minutes. And it's a card game and it's a set collection card game. And everyone starts with a hand of five cards and they're in various numbers and various colours, and the numbers are one to nine. There's a grid laid out, but size of the grid depends on the number of players. The cards at the ends are face up, and the cards in the middle are face down. On a player's turn, they're going to choose either end of any row, and then they're going to take between one and three cards. They put them in the front of their hand. Then they get to wind the film, hence the name, and they get to take any card in their hand and move it as many spaces forward as they want to, and then they have to play down onto the table an equal number of cards to the number of cards they drafted initially. Take two cards, you play two cards, and it has to be the back two cards. So every card that comes in goes to the front, every card that goes out comes from the back, and you get one wind the film each turn to try and break things up. Now, why are you worried about that? Because cards need to go down in sets of the same colour. However, they have to only be ascending or descending, and they have to be within three numbers of each other. You can't jump more than three at once. And if you do put down a colour card and it doesn't fit into that pattern, it turns upside down and it's going to cost you points at the end of the game. And it won't add to your set collection within that colour either. And you keep doing this. And most of the way through the game, a sunset card comes out and you have to play your back two cards and then you're down to just three cards in your hand. And now you're in real trouble because you've already started sending descending in colours and you're stuck and you can't really get this and that. And it becomes quite funny. And you're into this sort of tight drafting hand management game with very simple mechanisms. At the end of the game, the number of cards you collect in each colour is going to score your points. There's sort of like a sweet point after you've collected a few. And then if you get loads and loads of the same colour, you don't score as many, but you're still scoring for them and you're denying them from other players because you're going to lose points for any colour you haven't got any in at all. And also you're going to lose points for each card you've had been forced to play down that doesn't fit into your pattern and is now face down. The first players to get a certain number of cards, and it's 
player number dependent on how many cards you need to get this. Gets a bonus card for that colour, which will give them extra points, which will often make a difference in scoring. And once you sort of used all those cards up, that's it. Game over. Check your set, score your points. Who's won the game? It's risky because sometimes you have to take face down cards, especially as you get later on into the game. It's not a complete risk, however, because even though you're looking at the back of the card, it shows you what colour the card is and it shows you whether it's a low card or a high card. So although the risks are getting bigger towards the end of the game, you can see some of the cards that have already been played and you will know some of the cards in your hand. And there's sort of a range into which most of these cards will fall. So you're not just taking stabs in the dark. I love drafting anyway because I like that sort of feel of control and that I'm mostly in charge of my own destiny. Also, it's got the Bonanza hand management thing, which is absolutely fantastic. But it has got that little get out of winding the film. Now, you might get stuck with one bad card in your hand. You think, I'm just going to have to wind this. You can't wind it every turn. You cannot keep at some point. You're just going to have to give up and throw that down and decide whether to do that, to give yourself a bit more leeway, it's really fun and it's really quick and everyone's having a bit of a laugh and you will, the classic drafting, because everyone can see it's not drafting from a hand of cards, it's drafting from a grid. Everyone can see and you go, no, that was exactly the card I needed to draft. Why have you taken that? And people will chuckle at you and you'll have a laugh and you'll curse the game and it's different. It's funny and it plays quickly and I really like it and this is the top score for this episode because Photograph Wine, the film from me, gets an 81 I think it's a very clever little card game and is worthy of a bit of attention. Three more to go, and this is the expansion, and this is Cartographer's Heroes. If you listen to my solo games review, I reviewed Cartographer's in there, and I gave it a high score. I have been playing it since then, in fact, playing it a fair bit, but always with other people now. So I, I kind of, the solo thing, it's cool, I wouldn't mind playing solo, but I play a lot of Sprawlopolis when I get downtime. So basically I've been playing this with the family, with whoever, just as a filler to fill in. Without looking sight unseen, I saw that Heroes was available and some map packs, so I bought Heroes. And I just thought, well, I like cartographers. There's lots of different things they can do with this system. Let's see what they've chosen to do with it. So let's see what they have chosen to do with it. And I'll go through basically the five different things that were within this. First thing is, you get new maps. Okay. Definitely the top edge is not very different to the original map. The runes have moved a bit. The the underneath is, if you play cartographers, the, the void sort of blanked out areas are in different places. Bit more awkward. You know, that's okay, fine. There are new flipping cards. So the ones that actually tell you what polyomino shapes that you're going to draw in. And, I mean, they're new shapes. They're different combinations. You get different combinations of terrain that you didn't get in the first set. You're not allowed to combine them with the first set, I think, because you could get overloaded with one particular terrain, is my thinking on that. And yeah, cool. It's slightly different. It mixes it up. You're seeing different patterns. I use them sometimes, use the original sometimes. Okay, fine, fair enough. There are new goals. Now, you can combine these with the base game, and that is a big thing, because now, rather than just having the 16 cards to choose from, you now have eight of each set. You've got 32. That's you know so many more combinations and a lot more variety. They tend to, I've, what I've seen, tend to be sort of much more spatially dominant for the whole map. don't know if that makes sense. But rather than concentrating on certain things, it's about how you build the whole lot and how well it comes together. So I found them, they work best when they're in sort of C and D slots that are going to score later in the game. When you have had time to shape your map more than if they get, if you hit them early on and you're a bit like, well, all right, A will come around again. But 
You're like, that's that would never had a chance of really scoring that. So that's cool. I like that. That's that's a good addition. There are new monsters again. Cool, come in different shapes to the original ones. And finally, the titular heroes. Now, what the heroes do is they're free, and they come out. And there's one a, a season goes in the same as monsters in the original game, and they block an area, and then they will, in a certain pattern, depending on which hero it is, attack other squares. And if monsters are, or they are spaces that will be affected by monsters or will be affected by monsters, it blocks the monsters from affecting them, basically. So it's like a defense mechanism, makes the monster attacks, you can mitigate them a bit more, and you lose one time out of summer for that. So rather than being 8876, it's 8776, the timing mechanism on the game. I didn't love them. I never had a feeling that cartographers had to be easier. And certainly the, the monsters coming in, I, I, when you get very few monsters in cartographers, it feels a bit duller than when they're coming out and you're having to adapt and you're not just left yourself to do your own thing. So I didn't love the heroes, if I'm honest with you. And overall, for a box that is the same size as the original game, now you get a whole game to play, so you can just buy heroes and play it. But as someone who's been playing a fair bit of the original, I was not very excited by heroes and I kind of felt like it was as bog standard as an expansion can be. It was sort of like one new idea and then more of the same. I mean, am I gutted I bought it? Not really. But can I really say it's a very good expansion? I certainly can't. So given the bog standardness of it, I've just given it a flat 50. And say, if you play a lot of cartographers, it's worth getting. If you think it's going to change cartography view or mix it up or make it better, it's not. And there you go. That's Cartographer's Heroes. The next game is Ten Sons by Dominic Michael H, Medieval Lords, one to six players, 45 minutes long. It is based on the tales of Chinese legend of Hu Yi, who, in order to save the planet, shot down nine suns from the sky because uh, there was a ruck between some big powers and someone created ten suns and tried to scorch the earth and then this hero with his bow and arrow shot down nine of them to save us. And it's a cool story. The way the game works is that each round, all the players are going to be secretly bidding on cards. And there are two different energies which you're going to bid with. There's solar energy and there's lunar energy. Now, solar energy, you get an income of it each round and it will disappear at the end of the round. So you must spend it. Lunar energy is something that's harder to come by and it won't disappear. So it's sort of like a you're building up a reserve and you're choosing very much when to strike with that lunar energy. And you're going to want some towards the end of the game because these Hu Yi cards come out of the deck as you're sort of drawing to, to do some drafting and setting the bidding. And as they come out, they reduce the solar power. So your income in solar energy is going to reduce as the game goes on. So you're going to need some backup plans here as to how you're going to get cards as we go through it. So we draw some cards and they are gods, which are going to give you powers. And there's lots of different gods with lots of either instant powers or ongoing powers. And also there are locations, which is basically set collection. You're looking to get lots of different locations and that will score you points. Before you secretly bid on these five cards, though, there's going to be an amount of stuff given to the first player. <laughs> stuff, yeah. And that's going to be lunar energy, a handful of it. You never get a lot of lunar energy. And there's going to be some palace bits. And the first player is going to decide under which cards to put these and they will form part of the award for anyone who wins bid then everyone secretly is going to on a, like a card you've got which you hide with a screen depending on the players for the number of things that are up for bidding 
you're going to decide how much energy you've bid for each lot. And then we'll reveal it. There are some special powers which can kick in. The later you get in the game, the more gods people have, the more likely they are to be able to have special powers and do various things. So the more it sort of slows down as people interact and do this and that. But eventually it will be resolved and someone will win each of these lots and they will take the cards, get the instant power, get the ongoing power, get the palace bit, get the lunar energy, whichever it might be. You're going to play through this until lunar energy runs out. There's a couple of other in-game conditions. And then you're going to add up points for, when you collect palace bits, depending upon the size base, you can turn them in during the game. You score a certain number of points and you also get lunar energy for it, for your locations that you've collected, for how you've used your gods. And the most points is going to win the game. Now, Ten Suns has got some rough edges. It really has. It won a game design contest in 2019. Feel like it's been self-published. It's got some fabulous artwork on there, but the quality of components isn't that great and the quality of the printing is not that great. Some things are a bit dark. It is not clarified anywhere that we could see whether if you lose a bid, you still pay all your energy. We presume you do because that makes a lot of sense and that's how we've played it, but I couldn't see that anywhere within the rules. Now, that's just indicative that the rules are a bit rough and certainly everything's not covered. And definitely the God powers are not fully clarified. And there was a bit of interpretation in there. And in fact, there's a misprint whereby the guide to the gods and the inside of your screen is different to what's on the cards. And we had to go and check which one is actually the one that you follow. So, okay, we got to the bottom of that. That's fine. There's some one-off powers, which it's going to be very hard to remember. And it's... Uh, they can be a bit frustrating. And some of the interactions, especially the way that certain gods allow you to swap bids. Now, actually, a lot of the gods with their powers have got charges on them. So they'll only, you're only able to trigger their powers a certain number of times. I really like that. You rotate the card and it goes, you know, three charges to two to one. It's been in other card games where you rotate your cards for the number of charges left in it. And I think it's used very well here. But some of the god powers can be very irritating. And you can be in a situation of, I'm not quite exactly sure how that works. And you're going to steal a big bid from me and I get something back. But do they go to the same slot as each other? Do they go to different slots? Am I now winning something else and you're winning the one I wanted to win? Or do you get to... It's not explained. And again, we kind of had to go with the interpretation ourselves of how we thought that worked. There's also a barrier to entry here. And it's nothing at all to do with the theme. It's definitely very much to do with us as the players. We're all UK-based we're all got a certain you know, Western cultural background. This story was not familiar to us. And that was part of why sort of maybe the timing, the first time we played wasn't apparent of, oh yeah, the suns are going to fade, the solar power's going to down, the lunar power needs to come up. The powers of the gods were very hard to remember. It's very hard to remember even if you had the powers, never mind what other people's powers were. It was said at the table, and it was, it was a really good insight by Paul, that if this had the theme of Olympus, or Marvel, we would remember it a lot better. Because, and I'm going to use a strange analogy here, my dad went to school in Ireland. They were raised English-speaking, because you had to be when his parents were around. You know. So he sp if English was his language, he had to learn Latin via Irish, which he didn't speak. It's a bit like that, where you're trying to learn the rules through a theme that you're very unfamiliar with. Now, that's our problem. I love the theming. I love the art. I love the story. I love looking into the story and just learning a little bit more about it and feeling like, oh, I've learned a bit more, as I should do. It's just something that was interesting to me to think that 
we see games with the same themes again and again and again because they're a familiar language to us and it's easier to learn via those media and it's a barrier we say we want more interesting things we want more interesting things we get a really interesting theme and suddenly we're like oh what's going on that's our problem and it's something i definitely thought about and went okay next time i teach this i'm going to know a bit more about this theme and i'm going to look into it so that i can do those comments that make people remember things you know mention a particular god's important in the game and make them memorable and say, oh, yeah, this is this God that does this. This is this goddess who does that. And, and trigger people's mind via the theme. And that burden is on me to do. So anyway, Ten Sons as a game needed a developer if it was going to get really, really good and really, really polished. It needed a bit, little bit more money behind it. A bit of a better printing because the gameplay is all there. And it is fun. It is frustrating. You can get behind. If you win and you start winning God powers, then you're becoming more and more powerful. And other people have to sort of work out how to target things. You can't win all the bids, but you can start getting better. And people will then need to start targeting where do I go? And then you're going to have to sort of limit how much you're bidding because it, it works. It kind of balances between the group to a degree, but just a little bit of a polish. And I think it would get more attention. But it's definitely worth trying as it is with all the rough bits. And I've given it a 64. It could grow as I teach it more and I become more familiar with it. And I become a better teacher of it. I think it could become a better table experience. And I'd like to see where this goes. Okay, the last one I'm going to talk about is a mass market game. And you will not often hear them talked about on here. It's Genius Square by Salim Bagish. It's from the Happy Puzzle Company. It's for one to two players. It says five to 60 minutes. We'll go with five minutes, by the way, or 30 minutes or something like five minutes, five minutes tops. It's just for two players, but you can buy multiple copies to play with more. The one player game would just be a puzzle. In the two player game, it's a race against each other. And what you're racing is, is a six by six grid. You've got seven blockers, just like wooden discs, and you roll seven dice. And those dice will give you coordinates to put your seven blockers in place. Once both players have got seven blockers in place in the same place as each other, you then go. You've got a bunch of wooden cube polyomino pieces, which you've got to get into the shape around the blockers as quick as possible. First person to do it wins that round of Genius Square. That's it. That's all there is to it. I was put onto this by my sister. Her family have started playing games recently. This is one she said, if you try this, it's really funny. It is really funny. I will have to say that it's a bit easy. I don't know what the 30 minutes is about. We, we are smashing these out. These are proper races. These are proper sit quickly oh i've made a mistake oh i fumbled all right someone else has beaten me that might say a lot about either we've played a lot of polyomino ish games or it might be the knockoff turkish version of tetris my brother brought back from holiday once that i spent months playing but we are just quickly doing this but it is funny and we're laughing and it's a couple of minutes per play and each puzzle is slightly different and you're entertained and this has really been a lot of fun so for sort of addictive laughing competitive puzzling i recommend genius square and it's inexpensive as well it's on amazon you can get it anywhere it's where we place i've given it a 72 because it'd be hard to find a better two minute two player funny competitive game than genius square that's me done i did promise you those seven reviews would be in a much shorter time length than usual and there you go next time round the intention is that Sean and I will be looking back 10 years 
and giving you our top tens of 2012, as is our tradition, and then we'll be on to more reviews. Hopefully that all works out. Thank you very much for joining me today. As with John, if you've got any feedback to us, you can get, always get hold of us on Twitter, GamePit Podcast. You can also the GamePit Podcast at gmail.com or look us up on our BGG Guild or anywhere you see us sneaking around the place. By all means, give us a shout. Talk to us about what's been said here, what's been said in previous episodes or things you might like to see coming up. And I'll catch you next time on the Game Pit Podcast. Member of the Dice Tower Network, head to dicetower.com for all your gaming goodness. This music is by E. Arrow.